It wasn't the first time. It wasn't the first time that he heard God's voice. It wasn't even the first time that he heard God's voice at, say something that was challenging. But this time that he heard God's voice, it was a little different than the others. This time it was something that didn't quite make sense. He didn't want it to make sense. It was one of those times when he sensed strongly that God was speaking to him, and so his response was, God, really? You want that? God, are you sure that you are speaking right now? See, the first time that he heard God's voice, he felt strongly that God was telling him to leave his land, to leave the family of his fathers and begin a new family in a new land that God would show him. He said, go. So he went. Years later, he felt strongly that he heard the voice of God again, this time through a person who came to speak to him and said, I know that you're pretty old. I know that you and your wife are long past the days when you should be having kids, but this time next year, you're going to have a son. That made sense because he felt God told him that I will bless you and make your name great and to the ends of the earth your family will extend. So here he is at an old age without a son of his own with his wife. So it made sense that God then would say I will give you the son a year from now. Although it was hard to believe. A year later, a son was born. They named him Isaac. It relates to Laughter. See, now though, it's been about 13 years and he heard that voice again. He felt strongly that God was speaking to him and how this looked, I don't know. But on that day, in the Judean wilderness, he hears this voice that says, Abraham, I want you to take your only son Isaac, the son from you and, and your wife Sarah, and I want you to go to a place where I'll show you and I want you to sacrifice him for me. See, that voice isn't a voice he wanted to hear. And for those who are familiar with the story, maybe we glance over it and we read and then we think, man, this person has great faith, but what was that really like when he heard that voice? I mean, because if there's one thing that you want to be sure that it's God speaking to you about, it's this. You don't want to get this one wrong. So that night... He hears the voice. I don't think Abraham smiled about it. I think Abraham wrestled with God that night and probably prayed throughout the night, God, are you sure this is you speaking? Are you sure you want this from me? God, why would you want this from me? You promised me this son. You gave me the son. Now you're saying to give him back. God, really? So they wrestled through the night until he believed strongly that, yes, God has spoken. So he talked to his, some of his people who worked with him, his servants, and said, prepare the donkeys for a journey. Spoke to his son and said, son, we're going to go on a journey. 
We're going to go make a sacrifice to the Lord. So tomorrow we leave. Tells his wife, tomorrow I'm going to take your son and some of the servants. We're going on a journey. It's going to take a few days. God has asked me to go do this, so I'm going to. Did he give her all the details? My guess is no. (laughs) Probably not something you tell a mother. (laughs) Did he tell his son? I don't think so. Did he tell anyone at this point? I doubt it. And so they packed up the donkeys and as he's waiting and wrestling through the night, my guess is he didn't sleep again at all as he's waiting for dawn to break. Because when the sun rises, they would begin their three-day journey to the place where God will show them. A journey north to the hills of Judea. And they wrestled and wrestled with, he wrestled and wrestled with God and said, last chance, God, please show me what you want. And as the sun rose that morning, the voice hadn't changed. Go, take your son and give him back to me. So they packed the donkeys and with a heavy heart, they set off through the wilderness to the desert of Judea and the sun was hot, beating down on them as they walked through and the dust would rise. And what was that conversation like with your son? Were there times when Isaac looked at him and said, Hey, Dad, I'm 13 now, becoming a man. You know, Dad, when I get older, can I have some of the cattle? I want to start my own family. I want to build my own farm. And I'll live right next to you, Dad. And we can go fishing together at the end of the day. I'm going to have kids and you can be right there. You can babysit for us. Wouldn't that be great, Dad? There are times when Abraham had to look away with tears in his eyes, thinking, God, you can't be taking this from me. But the journey continued. Long stretches of silence as they walked and walked to the hills of where now we believe we're in Jerusalem today. And they got to the place where God had showed them at the base of this hill and Abraham looks at his servants and says, stay here with the donkeys. Stay here because I'm going to travel up this hill, up this mountain with my son. And we're going to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And he says something very peculiar here in verse 8 of Genesis 22. He says, my son and I, we will return to you after we make the sacrifice. When he said we will return, is he just saying that because he believes it? Or does he think in this case that he'll say that so no one asks questions? So Isaac doesn't ask questions. Either way, they begin the journey up the hill and Isaac picks up the the load of wood and puts it on his back. The wood that would become the altar upon which he will be sacrificed to God. He puts the wood on his back and starts making his way up and his dad is carrying the fire and the knife. And on the journey, his son looks at him and says, Dad, we have the wood, we have the fire, we have the knife. What are we going to sacrifice? At this point, Abraham can no longer hold back the tears as they just fill his eyes and they start coming down. And at this moment, Isaac must have known. He must have known what was coming as he looks at him and says, Son, I am so sorry, but God has spoken. 
And this story is a great story of the faith of Abraham, but don't miss, don't miss what's happening with Isaac. You see, because according to Scripture, Abraham was somewhere over 100 years old or around 100 years old, and Isaac was a 13-year-old young man. Nothing against Abraham, but there's not many 13-year-olds who cannot outrun (laughs) or out-wrestle a (laughs) 100-year-old. Isaac, at this point, was a willing sacrifice. He learned what was going to happen and he kept walking because his dad, you've never been wrong, so I'll walk with you. It's an eerie foreshadow to what would happen a couple thousand years later, probably near the same hill when Jesus Christ carried the wood on his back in the form of a cross to sacrifice for all of mankind. But they make their way up this hill. They reach to the top and together they begin assembling the altar. Now, what are your conversations like? What thoughts are running through the mind of Abraham as he thinks, God, this is cruel. Why are you doing this? But They make the altar and Scripture says that they bind his son and he lays down on the altar. And Abraham, still praying, says, God, your last chance... Please, don't make me do this. And he looks at his son, and I'm sure he looks away as he raises his hand. How could you look at your son at this point? As he's looking away, he said, God, please. And at that moment, right before he strikes down, he hears the voice again. This time the voice says, Abraham, stop. And if ever you want to obey the Lord, this is the time it's not hard to obey, right? (laughs) He stops. And he says, now I know that you're serious about your faith in me. Look over there. There's a ram and its horns are caught in the bushes, in the thicket, in the branches. Use that instead of your son. Don't have to tell him twice. I'm sure you didn't have to tell Isaac twice. As Isaac said, Dad, I'll go get it for you. I'll stay here. <laughs> and he brings them over and they make the sacrifice to the Lord. And in this place, as they're walking up, as they were walking up, Abraham said, God will provide for us. They get to the top and the provision was the son, but now he sees a ram in the thicket that they sacrificed and Abraham, so he names this place, God will provide. Was this story about God's, or Abraham's great faith? Was it about God being a God who's willing to give, but sometimes may ask for it back? Was it just about faith? Was it about power? Or is it about a God who sees? You see, because Abraham calls this place, God will provide. And in Hebrew, that same word is used in verse 8 and verse 14. And God will provide actually isn't the Hebrew word here. This word is God will see. God will see to it, my son. God will see about finding a sacrifice. And when they get to the top, they find the ram and Abraham names a place, God sees. Which then we use mean that God sees your needs and shows up in those moments. God saw what was needed here and showed up. Why did he do it this way? I don't know. But he's a God who sees. 
They went on from that place and imagine what that journey home was like. (laughs) What did that do to Abraham's faith? What did it do to Isaac? What did it do when they got home to talk to the mom? Or did he say, let's not talk to your mom about this. (laughs) (laughs) But one thing they know, know is that God saw and stepped in at that moment. We're in the middle of a series called God Is. And this series is a series we're exploring the character of God. And we're using the Psalms to look at how ancient writers described the character of God and who He is. And this morning we're looking at an aspect of God as God is a provider. And today we're going to look at Psalm 23, which we read during our, our time of worship and music earlier today. And Psalm 23 is a very familiar psalm to many of us, even if you're not familiar with much scripture, you've probably heard parts of Psalm 23 before. You see, this psalm is a psalm that talks about God as a provider. And what we're going to do for the rest of today is break this psalm down and look at the aspects of it and ask the question, if God is a provider, how does he provide? In what ways does he show up for us as a provider? And we'll explore it there. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 23. As we begin and look at this, it's important to know that Psalm 23 is written, we believe, by David. Most likely it's written by David before he became King David. And David had a job before he was king, and his job was to be a shepherd. He was a shepherd boy. Likely, um, he had, his family was from the town of Bethlehem. He was likely a shepherd in the hills and in, through the valleys outside of what is now Jerusalem. Likely the same hills where the story from Genesis 22 took place. Where he is a shepherd. And he had plenty of time to sing and to write. We know that David wrote um, uh, the majority of the Psalms and we know that he was artistic that way and, and, and used music and applied music to him. He was kind of one of the first contemporary Uh, worship leaders of the time. Everyone uses his music. (laughs) And this is one of the psalms that he wrote. And perhaps it was a time when he was frustrated that he was just a shepherd boy. Because we know from his life that he had dreams of bigger things. In fact, at one time when Israel was going to war and all his brothers got to go fight in the battle, David wanted to be there. But being the youngest of all the brothers, he had to stay back and watch the sheep. Like often, they probably looked at him and said, Come on, shepherd boy, go back to the sheep. We've got man work to do. Perhaps it was then that David was frustrated and said, I don't want to be a shepherd. I want more. I want more. And at that moment, did God show up and speak to him because he writes this Psalm 23, which we know is, we call it a Psalm of Confidence. It's the genre of a psalm that they write to remind themselves of the character and and the power of God. And he begins with this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or I lack nothing. That's great coming from a shepherd writing this. He actually says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, a couple things I want you to understand before we go any further. The word shepherd in Hebrew is a word, it's ro'e, which means one who sees or who looks after. 
Interesting that we use the idea of God will provide is God will see. He will see your needs. And now God's compared to a shepherd, the one who sees, the one who looks at your life and knows what's happening. So David says, the Lord is the one who sees. The Lord is the one who looks at my life. And because of that, I shall lack nothing, even as a shepherd. Now, something else you should know about a shepherd is they worked with sheep. And sheep are known as quite possibly the dumbest animals around. They really are very dumb. Um, sheep, as opposed to goats, goats are actually the smarter cousins of sheep. Goats, you can just have a big open area that has water and has grass and has shelter, and a goat will figure it out. They'll know, I'm hungry, I'm going to the grass. I'm thirsty, I'll go to the water. It's cold, I'll go to the rocks. Sheep will wander around going, man, I'm hungry. <laughs> wonder where that green stuff over there is oh, I'm hungry I'm thirsty what do I do next and they just wander around without a shepherd sheep won't even find food or water that's how dumb they are David says the Lord is my shepherd in other words Lord I'm dumb <laughs> but you're the one who watches over me and because you're my shepherd I shall lack nothing that's how it begins the Lord sees. He's watching over. He sees my life. If God is a provider, we need to begin with the idea and understanding that he is the one who sees. He provides. Now verse 2, what is he providing? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Now in each of these verses, there's almost a progression of needs that are being met. And in each of them, it's using a Hebraic technique where both lines from each verse kind of reinforce one another. So when he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me by quiet waters. It's not two separate things, it's one in the same. And actually what it's most likely relating to here is he provides for our physical needs. Because a sheep is not smart enough to find the green pastures or the quiet waters. The, sh the shepherd leads them there when it's time to drink, when it's time to eat. And so there's this picture of, with, as long as I'm with my shepherd, I know that those basic needs will be met. So scripture here in Psalm 23 begins by telling us that God shows up and meets our physical needs. Now, I wish I could say that God's meeting our physical needs always is in the way that you and I want them to be met. And I can't fully explain how some people can live in such poverty with a great faith in God. I don't really know how that works out. I don't know. I, I, I wrestle with that and say, God, if you're meeting their needs, why are they starving? Why are they hungry? How do you show up? But I do know consistent throughout Scripture is this picture of God who sees, who knows, who understands. Let's take it to an example where maybe you and I can relate to. My wife and I used to live in uh, South Orange County. And we lived in a town called Mission Viejo, a great place to live. We lived there for uh, about 12 years. We bought a home in year 2000. And it was a small little home, it was Cape Cod style. Apparently, I've been told it was cute. Um, and, and I have three boys, uh, you know, houses aren't cute. So anyway, but it was this little Cape Cod style, but it was small. It had 1,000 square feet. We, uh, shared, we had three boys and me and my wife, and we had one and a half bathrooms. So there was one shower, which was fine with, with four boys, because it didn't get used very often, but my wife needed it. And 
But we had, it was a relatively small house. The front yard was about six feet deep. So you'd come up, open the door, and you'd have about six feet till you got to the sidewalk and the street. And the neighbors had about the same amount on the other side. So we were, next door neighbors across the street were very, very close, almost like from here to that back wall. And every morning I'd come out, and I had this neighbor, I remember the first year I lived there, he was always outside every morning watering his lawn with a hose just by himself out there with the hose. That's how small the lawns were. And every morning I'd come out and he'd say, hey neighbor. And, and I seriously thought I was on the Truman Show. I'd look around and like, where are the spotlights here? And he'd go, hey neighbor, beautiful day today, isn't it? I'm like, yes it is. It's going to be nice today. Yep. <laughs> and I was just waiting for him to say, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, good night. Anyway, but... um. But it, and so we kind of lived in this, you know, interesting, beautiful, like great place to live, but it was, you know, Truman Show it, but it was small. But we learned to be really content with it. In fact, we were so content with it that it almost became a source of pride for me. To be able to look at people in South Orange County, which they kind of like stuff in Orange County, I don't know if you knew that, and, and, but we had a small house, and people would even say, oh, you have a small house. How can you live in there with three kids? You're like, well, you know, we're happy. It's fine. And we were happy. We really were content. We even had parties where we'd have like 40 or 50 people in this small house. It works. It really does. But it got so much to where we were like, God has blessed us, and we're fine with this. Until a few years ago, we moved down here, and we sold that home. And we made some bids on houses down here, and it was three years ago when People were outbidding us by like $100,000 and paying with all cash. And every month the price was going up by $30,000, $40,000 until we realized we can't afford this anymore. And so we're renters. Now, is that a bad thing? No, it's not. But this has been tough for us. Because we were at a point where we said, no, we're content with what we have. We were totally fine. And then when that's not even there, it was a struggle. God, why do I have to be a renter now? as if that changes anything. It's almost as if God said, Ryan, do you lack anything? It was easy for me to say no when I owned my house, even though it was small. It was in a great place. But then that was gone. I still have a place to live. My kids have everything they need. I know that. Sometimes that's a struggle. And God has to remind me, Ryan, what do you think you really need? What is it you need that you don't have? Owning a house, do you think you need that? You don't. Now, if he wants to change his mind, I'm fine with that. But <laughs> for now, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. What is it for you? How is God showing up and meeting your needs? Maybe he is in ways when you say, well, he's not. But maybe if we take a step back, you realize God's there. He's a provider. The psalm goes on in verse 3. So he starts off with a physical need. Then he says, he restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Remember, those are connected. Restoring your soul and guiding you in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. So he sees, he sees your spiritual life here. He's looking into your soul. He sees that there's a time when maybe you need it to be restored or refreshed. The Hebrew terminology here is he returns to my soul or he does something, gives back to it. To kind of understand this, I want to go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when we first see this word of soul pop up in Scripture. And it's talking about the formation of mankind. And he says this, The Lord God formed man from dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
and man became a living being, or here it says, and man became a soul. So God's breath breathed into mankind, and we became soul or spirit. So something in us that made us who we are as a spiritual being came from the breath of God. It didn't come from anywhere else. So God's spirit or God's breath breathes into us, making us who we really are, the spiritual side of our lives. So when David now is writing this psalm and say he restores or returns back to my soul, he uses that same terminology. And like God is giving back or breathing in to my spirit. The question for us here is, as a follower of Jesus, many of you, maybe you've been following for a lot of years, and have you gone through or are you going through a season maybe where you say it's a, a dry period in your life? A period when maybe you feel in the desert spiritually and there's times when you just say, I just don't know if God's shown up or I just need God to refresh my soul. The question is, how do you, what are you doing to allow him to do that? Where are you turning when your soul needs to be refreshed? I believe there's a lot of ways that God can show up there, but sometimes what we do is we end up turning to ourselves, even in very good spiritual ways. We might say, I feel like my soul needs to be refreshed, so I'm going to go up in the mountains for two days and I'm going to read the Bible, the whole Bible. (laughs) And God's going to speak into me in that. And could he? Yes, he could. And some people have really had great times with that. Some just say, I'm going to pray for three days straight and God will show up and speak. But sometimes we add all these things and the person we're actually turning to is ourself. God, if I could just be a little bit more spiritual, I bet you will speak to me. When what David says is, God is the one who breathes his spirit back into you. And maybe the very thing you're doing, you need to release. I'm not saying stop doing it. But say, God, you know what? Where you guide me here. What is it in me that's holding back from your spirit speaking into me? How am I trying to take over and take control? What do you need to release? Some of you, it's destructive behaviors that you're holding on to that God says release. How can I speak into your soul and your spirit? How can I breathe life back into you when you are holding this shield and not letting me in? What is it for you? And notice the second part of that. He says, He guides me in the path of His righteousness for His name's sake. So the point is this. If God is going to speak back into your soul, breathe life back into you, it's for His name's sake. He's guiding you on the path. We need to get over the fact that this Christian walk is about us, that the story is about us, that the scripture is about us, that the psalm is somehow about us. It's not. It's about the shepherd who's good, who's giving to you and to me. When we want God to breathe back into us, we need to stop and say, God, how are you leading me? What do you want from me? See, often we ask that question is, we actually kind of make it about us even when it sounds really good. God, how do you want to use my life? Or how do you want to make me more like you? That's a good thing. But maybe your question is, God, how do you want to show up and live through me? God, what do I need to do to allow you to be more of me? What do I need to surrender? Is the question. That's that guides me on the path of righteousness for his name's sake. God, if this is about you, how can I step away and let you step in?
Let him breathe life. Return into your soul. The next is this. He goes on now. So he's talked about your physical needs. Kind of a spiritual soul need. And then he goes, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Again, those are connected. Walking through the places in life where there's just this fear and worry. And when you look around, you think, I don't want to be in this place. Now, David likely had some very physical reminders of that, of the valley of the shadow of death where he was. There was valleys and steep rocks and, and even right outside of modern day Jerusalem is this valley that became the valley of Gehenna, which then became the word for hell. So there's some scary physical places there. But what are the scary places in our life? What are the, the valleys of the shadow of death that we walk through? Maybe you are involved in politics and you look around and you say, wait, this isn't going the way I want it to. Maybe our country isn't heading the direction I want it to be heading. Maybe you look at world news and you say, wow, our world seems in turmoil. And it's scary. Maybe you look at your family and your friends or your company and and financial news and, and that's your valley of the shadow of death. Places where you're afraid to walk through. David doesn't say that he takes us away from there. He just says that the shepherd is walking with us. says that he has his rod and his staff. Now these are real tools in a shepherd's belt. They're used for a few things. One, to keep the sheep on course. Remember, they're really dumb. They actually had a shepherd's staff that could pull the sheep and say, you are about to fall off a cliff. Get back here. And the sheep is just thinking, I am? Oh. (laughs) They really are that dumb. So they pull them away from the cliff. Pull them out of danger. Sometimes they had to kind of knock them back into line. Say, we're going this way now. And the sheep would say, oh, okay. They also had the rod. It was kind of like a club. And it was used to defend the sheep from wolves, from bears. So the picture of our shepherd, of God being our shepherd, is saying that you are going to face some tough times. You will maybe see politics go a direction you don't always like. You might see your country not be the way you want it to be. World news may not always encourage you and make you think that God is on His throne. But trust me, God is on His throne and He walks with you. And He's able to comfort you and guide you in the past. And we can rest knowing that even though things are not looking the way we want them to, we can rest knowing that God is still on His throne. Even if this doesn't change, we find comfort in resting, saying, I don't have to change it. I just have to be faithful to my God in this situation. He's walking with me, whatever that looks like. So there's hope that we find in the Good Shepherd. In Peter, uh, the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes this way when he's talking about hope. So this kind of gives a little more understanding to how we find hope in the shepherd, in the light of this world. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, I have it for you on the screen. Blessed be the God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
to obtain, now get this, an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. In other words, when Peter's writing, he says, the hope that you have is that when you are in the family of God, you have an inheritance as a child of God in the politics, your uh, finances, the world, the way it's working, nothing will take away from your firm security and identity of knowing that you are a child of God and that cannot change. The hope that we have is that there's something more to life than what we see. And we can rest in that. We can have confidence that God hasn't forgotten about us or this place. Verse 5 of Psalm 23. He says this, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows. So now he says, I, first he said, I'll comfort you in those scary times. And now even in the presence of your enemies, I prepare a table before you. And again, to understand this, let's understand ancient Near Eastern culture. Preparing a table before him is essentially saying, I, I provide a feast and I'm inviting you in to be a part of the feast. You become an honored guest in the midst of this. So even when you're in the presence of all your enemies, even when you feel like you're the only one walking this way, God says, I want you to know that you are my honored guest. That you have a place where you get this, where you, are, where you belong and you are accepted. It's in the family of God. You have a place. Even when you look around and think, I have nowhere, God says, you are my treasured guest. Even if you say, God, I don't deserve to be there. I've been running with the enemies. I'm not worthy. He says, come in. I invite you in. I prepare a table before you. Then he anoints your head with oil. This related to the practice of if you went in at a dinner party because of the being out in the elements all the time, they'd anoint your head with oil. It was soothing, but it also actually helped your complexion. And it washed the dust away and kind of made you glisten. I guess the glistening skin was a sign of, of acceptance and, and it kind of it was a good thing. I think it still is. Um, I have three boys. I told you. I don't, I don't know what skin's supposed to look like. But so you're, accept, you're anointed with oil, your, your face would glisten, and then the other thing it did, it made you smell better. It made you presentable for the party. How many of you are a follower of Christ and you say, I don't feel presentable in the family of God? Maybe it's the life that you've lived, the life you're living, the temptations, struggles you go through, your lack of knowledge, your lack of commitment, and you say, I'm not presentable. And the good shepherd says, I will prepare a table before you. You're welcomed in and I'm going to make you presentable in the family of God. I will do that for you because I'm good. Let's continue on verse 6. He ends with this. It says, Surely goodness and loving kindness, or some translations might have mercy, it's the same word. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that's likely referring to actually the, the temple of God being able to go and to worship. In other words, not separated from God. But I want you to, if your Bible say um, loving kindness will follow me, I want you to make a little note there. Follow is not a very good word. The word here is used in almost every single case throughout Scripture when this word is used. It's used to pursue. And it's used in the context of armies pursuing an enemy or being pursued by someone. 
So the picture in Scripture here isn't that goodness and mercy will kind of follow you around as if there's some sort of you know, aura or odor following you of goodness and mercy everywhere you go. It's not just trailing behind you. It's a picture of God's goodness and His mercy relentlessly pursuing your life everywhere you go. It's intentionally used to be pursued here as if it's a military combat pursuing after you. Now when you're being pursued, that also implies that there's times when you're running from it. And that love and kindness pursues you. The picture of the good shepherd is that for the rest of your life, God who's good, the God who sees your needs, the God who knows your situations, the God who knows your heart is pursuing after you. His goodness and his mercy. Look in Luke chapter 15 verse 4. Jesus was speaking and he says this, Suppose that one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Speaking to people who understand shepherds. (laughs) Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. Jesus is comparing this to the way God pursues us. Even if one of his sheep wanders off, he'll leave the others to pursue that one because he cares so desperately for that one. And he rejoices when he brings them back. Some of you are here this morning and maybe you've been running away from the good shepherd. Maybe you've been running away from, uh, from God. Maybe you've never, you're, and I don't even know why you're here. Someone brought you here. Maybe a parent brought you here. Maybe a spouse brought you here. Maybe a, you like the coffee. <laughs> but somehow you showed up this morning and maybe you've been trying to run and God's saying to you this morning, I'm pursuing after you. The very fact that you're hearing these words this morning show that God is chasing after you even now. Maybe for some of you, you just say, I haven't been running from God, but I've been kind of trying to turn my head away. And he's saying, my mercy and goodness are pursuing you. How do you need to respond? As God sees and is trying to provide for you this morning in the way of salvation, in the way of hope. As we get close to the end here, I'm going to invite the worship team to start making their way up. I want to turn to another passage in John chapter 10. This is Jesus who's speaking. You see, Jesus understood the Psalms. He knew the Psalms. He was familiar with them. All the good Hebrew boys and girls would have known many of them. and They knew the writings of David. Certainly they would recite them, and it was likely that they knew Psalm 23. And they knew that God described himself, or David described God as a shepherd who sees our needs, who provides in those ways. So Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 11 through 14, he says this, Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. So if you ever think that Jesus doesn't claim to be God, when we understand the whole of Scripture, that God's described as a shepherd and Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, this is one of the many ways that he says, hey, that God, creator God, that's me. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not know the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep, he runs away. Then the wolf attacks and the flock scatters. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. 
The aspect we looked at this morning is God is provider. And He is a provider He because He sees to our needs. He sees where you're at. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good one who's watching over my sheep. As we end our time here this morning, I just want to ask you to take some, mo- some time to allow God to speak to your heart. For some of you, maybe today, you just need to remember that He is a provider of physical needs. Maybe you need to look at your life and God's just saying, you know, if you learned contentment, you would understand that I'm there. Maybe for some, if you learn generosity, you will see how I still show up in your time of need. Some of you this morning, maybe you need to turn to God and know that He will provide that spiritual renewal in your life. You've been looking for it in all kinds of different areas. Or maybe you haven't been looking for it and you're wondering why you feel far from God. Today, can you surrender and stop and let Him breathe back into your soul? For some, you're living your life filled with fear. You don't understand the why the world is the way it is and you wish it would change, but it's not and you just are living in fear. Can you today stop and rest, believe that God is good and He even sees that and He'll see to it and that you are accepted in. For some of you need to remember that today you are welcomed into the family. What is it for you? Let's just take some time here as the music starts to just let God speak to us. And let's be a church filled with people who understand that this is really about the Good Shepherd, it's not about us. It's about God being the one who's on the throne, not about us. Let's let Him shine so we can be people who put His life on display as we live. And even if maybe we've been sheep who are wandering and God has to take out the staff and knock you in the head a little bit, discipline you and get you on course, let Him do that today. Let's be people who just allow God to move us for His name's sake so that He can shine, so He can be made known. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are the good shepherd. We thank you that you are the one who sees and you will see to our needs. God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is still struggling with believing that, that you would meet them here in this place. And maybe, God, for those of us who say we believe it and who accept it, but sometimes we just need an extra measure of your grace your goodness, your mercy. Sometimes we just need your spirit to breathe life back into ours. God, would you do that now? And let Seacoast Church be a church that's all about you and letting your name be lifted up so that our friends, our coworkers, our family, so they can know who you are and how great you are. We thank you now, Lord, and give you this time.